0: Our scripture is found in Exodus, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Please stand if you are able. <clears> then <throat> Moses and the people of Israel sang this, this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depth like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps concealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized their inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, by, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated.
1: Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer before we begin the, the message. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You are the God who has given us your revealed word. You are the God who allows us to comprehend that word and apply it in our lives by the power and person of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your spirit would do the work unto our hearts and our minds, under our resolve, our conviction, that we might live out this, this time in this world as those willing to, to be image bearers, as you called us to be, and those willing to be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, willing to show the world who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is entitled, How Do You Know If You Really Fear God? Me personally, I, I like to take those kind of phrases and see how well I actually comprehend them for myself, how well I could communicate them to someone else, or is it something that I just know in my heart? There, there are times in our lives where we think we have a concept down, but when, when it comes time to actually communicate or maybe even teach it to someone else, we realize we really don't have that concept down. There are times like we can we can walk into a conversation. I, I uh, get a retirement email frequently throughout the um, the month as a, a retired police officer. Typically, they'll let you know who has recently passed on that you used to work with or something along that lines. But this week, I received one that said, hey, I don't know if you know, but here's the new use of force draft that the city of Phoenix is going to have as um, all the police officers are going to have to follow it. And it has on there a statement, a reference to the use of force continuum. Well, if you walked in on a conversation that I was having with some of the other uh, either retired or current police officers in this congregation, you might sit there and go use of force continuum. All right, it has to do with what, what a police officer can do. Continuum means range. So it's dealing, somehow it's dealing with the range and the policies involving that. And you'd, and you'd feel like, okay, I, I can listen to this conversation with co- some comprehension. But unless you were part of the law enforcement community, you wouldn't really understand that the use of force continuum is what you are going to be held to if you ever take force. Use any force. Take someone's life, I should say. And the, the courts are going to, to, to determine whether or not you acted appropriately. And so you really have to know, you know, how many steps does it take to move up the continuum? How do you move up? Can you jump steps? Are you supposed to come down the continuum? What does that look like to come down the continuum? What's the perception of the situation? How much of the situation drives what you will be doing versus your own perception of your own safety as well as the safety of the community? And all of a sudden you go, oh, wow. There's a lot involved in that use of force continuum. And, and anybody who's in law enforcement better know it because if you apply it wrong, someone could get hurt or you yourself could die if you don't escalate quickly enough to, to protect yourself or someone else. So all of a sudden you realize there's a lot more to that concept than what maybe I could just get out of the title. Well, that's kind of what we're dealing with today. I'm afraid that there are, in, in my own attempts to think, through quickly. What does the fear of God mean? Because it has bearing significance on us as Christians. What does that really mean? And therefore, the question begs itself, do I really fear God? Or do I have a wrong understanding of this, and I've never really feared God? We can't answer those questions until we understand the concepts. So what I'd like to do today is allow what God has done to reveal that truth in a chronological order to us and use uh, today's song that that was just read by Paul. Our scripture today is a song, and I will explain that in a minute, but let me first lay some precedence for what we know about the fear of God. In Genesis 20, we're in the book of Exodus, we're in book number two of 66. Uh, In Genesis 20, so the 20th chapter, Abimelech, king of Gerar, confronts Abraham. And he says, hey, Abraham, time out. I had a dream last night. And God told me in this dream, this vision, do not touch Abraham's wife. Now, when I met you, you told me she was your sister. And so I do what kings kings in that area do. She was a beautiful woman, so I wanted her to be one of my wives. And now I find out from this vision that I would have been a dead man if I touched her what's the deal? Why did you tell me she was your sister instead of she was your wife? And he says this in verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of this. So Abraham assesses the situation and says, I'm in a foreign land with a foreign people. I could easily die if this king, if I run into a king who says, fine, she's your wife, I'm taking her. And the way I'm taking her and making this all legit is, you're a dead man, I'll kill you, remove you, and she becomes my wife. That's his fear. So he says, tell him you're my sister, which technically, she is his half-sister. So he technically, but we all know that that's not the truth of what, what's going on here. So we can see from this understanding that to not have the fear of God, as it relates to Abraham's understanding, is that means that you, are, you can be ruthless enough to kill, or at the very least, you're certainly unpredictable. I don't know by what standard you live by, therefore you become unpredictable and dangerous to me if you don't have a fear of God. All right, so that's what we we know by learning the the opposite or the negative side. We're starting to get a feel for it. We'll take a look, and we just have to jump two more chapters over to Genesis 22. Abraham now sets out. God says, take your son Isaac up to a mountain and sacrifice him to me. If If you're not familiar with Christianity, this might be like, what is your God all about? Bear with it. This is a test. So we see whether or not Abraham, who does not trust God at times and makes up lies that could jeopardize his wife being taken by another king, two chapters later, God's going to put him to a test. Because Abraham, that was the second time he told the king that his wife was only his sister. So now God is testing him to say, where are you with actually your fear of God? And right before Isaac, excuse me, right before Abraham is getting ready to drive the knife down into Isaac, his son, to make him the sacrifice unto God. We, we hear this from God. He says, and this is actually uh, spoken by, it, uh, Scripture tells us this is the angel of Yahweh. And now you, you've heard some of the, you've heard Pastor Pete, when he prayed just uh, at the beginning, he used the word Yahweh. You won't see that written in your Bible, so if you're new here and you're visiting, anytime you see Lord in all, all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's, the, that's the, the way of saying Yahweh without saying it in the Hebrew because the Hebrews thought it was too religious to, it would be irreverent to, to use that word of God. So we use it because we know it's not irreverent. We're identifying specifically. Who our God is. This this God of the Hebrews is our God. So he says, this is uh, the angel of Yahweh says this For now I know that you fear God, or El, Elohim, which means mighty one, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So we can see here that, all right, now we understand that the fear of God has this component of absolute obedience to God willing in heart to do that which God causes you to or calls you to do even if it doesn't make sense to you and some of what God says to you in his word as a new believer you look and go hey I've judged my whole life based on what the culture says some of this stuff seems kind of weird I'm really supposed to do some of this stuff as it relates to I've got to be honest to the point of being persecuted yeah, you're not, you're not allowed to tell fibs or lies anymore. So some of this might seem awkward when we hear what, what God calls us to do. Abraham demonstrated that he was willing to do whatever God called him to do, no, no matter how strange it was, God never intending for him to kill his son, but rather test him on what he would do with his obedience to God. Abraham finally passing the test. So we see that obedience is a component of the fear of God. All right? So we're getting a, a better understanding. Well, today we're going to look at two other components. One of them was in the very last verse of chapter 14 that we dealt with last week. And the other one is the, the deals with the first 21 verses of chapter 15. And to, so will you do me a favor and take your bulletin? I want to make sure we, we've got this straight. On the back of the bulletin, you have your sermon outline. And you can see how I'm going to cover the different verses and what I'm going to talk about in here. And you can see in particular the takeaway today. This is what we need to realize. If you didn't know this, this will be helpful to know as you, as you think, what is the fear of God and do I have it? And the, that is that worship is the natural flow of a heart that fears God and cannot help but exalt God or him above all. Okay? So that's what we're focusing primarily on. But we're also going to be taking a look at some of the other components. I've also put in there this handout. If you'll notice on this handout, the insert in your bulletin, it's, it looks suspiciously like a song. These are all 21 verses of, the, of chapter 21 that we're dealing with today. And this is actually a song a victory. So, rather than in your Bible, in some areas it looks like it's more in narrative than it is in song form. I went ahead and put this there so you could see that this is actually written as a song. And I'll have to—I'll be will be frank with you. I'm looking at this this week, studying this, and I'm—I'm I'm trying to figure out—is this song based on, on. Themes, and therefore we identify stanzas based on themes, or how is this based on? And it was actually, I want to give credit to him, John Curid, Currid, C-U-R-R-I-D, who's a commentator, that helped me see. And if you'll take a look at this, look at the front where it starts off with uh, verse number one, and you'll notice I put it towards the bottom where it says uh, verse number five, or I should say the, the bottom of a stanza, which is about mid uh, uh, insert. In yellow highlight, I have like a stone. And then I have in uh, red uh, print, I have, oh, Yahweh, oh, Yahweh. Well, he helped me see that, oh, that identifies the end of a stanza. Once you can identify that, then you go back to the stanza to see what the thrust of it is. So there's partitioning. And then if you look down, as you move into point number two, which deals with verses 7 through 11, you'll see that at verse 10, you've got like lead. Again, a reference to something that sinks in water. And then you have it ending, verse 11, in Oh Yahweh again. So you have, oh, all right, so there's the end of stanza number two. Flip the page, page over, you're starting to see a pattern. And you see that it, there's, there's a reference to something weighted that's going to be brought down in the water. And you see that there's a stone, as a stone. There's our reference to Oh Yahweh again. And then he ends in an epilogue. And I put the definition of an epilogue so that we would understand that this is an epilogue. An epilogue, as we understand it, is a short conclusion dealing with the future of the characters. We're going to see in this that he actually is going to tell us in this song the future of the characters in the song, which are the Israelites, so we can appreciate what's happening to them. And we take great joy in knowing what their destination is. Then he has a few comment, uh, narrators' comments in verses 19 to 21a. And then lo and behold, for you that like Jane and Sean and, and Pete and some of you others of uh, Brooklyn that uh, appreciate music, hey, if it's a song, it needs a, refra- a refrain. And you realize that there's actually a refrain and the refrain is uh, inspired by God through... God references Miriam, but he doesn't just references Moses' sister as his sister. He references her as the prophetess. Moses is leading this song as the prophet who knows, and it's being told to him what the words will be. And we see the sister, Miriam, jump in as someone who is having the word revealed to her. She's providing the refrain. We have a beautiful picture of the people of God singing a victory song, and it's a victory song of worship of Yahweh. It's what we just did. We sang in our our hymn of adoration this morning, Psalm 138. We read it first, and then we sang it. Well, they led that, us in knowing what that looks like by way of what God's uh, inspiration and, di- and divine leading onto them. And so it's, it's, it's just a beautiful picture. I know that some of you may not be as, as big into music as some of the other people, but this is a wonderful picture of how music, how song draws us into worship of God. That's one of the reasons God calls us to sing to him. Sometimes we come in here on a Sunday morning and we're, our mind's all everywhere else. And we start to sing the first hymn, and our mind starts to be able to be focused because there's a melody that we're following, and there's words that are biblical. And there's, there are words that aren't focused on us. There are words focused on God himself. So we have this beautiful picture of what's going on. Well, let's, let's take a look at turning your Bibles to 1431. And I want to deal first with the second component. One of the components of the fear of God is obedience. We saw that. That was from the Genesis. Uh, Now we're in Exodus, and God reveals more. This word is the progressive revealing of God to his people. So progressively, we learn, we don't go to, it's not a dictionary, we don't go to one spot and it says, thou says, this is what the, the definition of the fear of God is. No, God gives it to us in pieces through the way he has chosen to reveal it. So that's what is happening here in this particular situation. So in, in verses 14, 30, Exodus 14, 31, it, says, it reads this way. Israel saw great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed, and there's the key word for us, and that fear demonstrated belief in Yahweh and his servant Moses. The people saw the mighty work of God. What did they believe? Now, we can't jam into this understanding of what they believed, everything we know, because we are in the the tail end of the Bible. We know a lot more than they know about God. So what do they know at this point? They've just witnessed the the exodus. They know that the God of their fathers is more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. He has defeated them one by one, picked them off by way of the plagues, and now he has brought the, uh, the Egyptians through this Red Sea exodus, and he's killed their enemy. There's nothing any of their gods nor the Egyptians themselves could do to stop Yahweh. So they know God is powerful, but they also know that God promised them, and Moses reminded them of that promise, that he said that he would deliver them from a people and a nation that would oppress them for 400 years. So they've seen that lived out. So they they believe that God is the most powerful God, and they believe that this God is a God that keeps his promises. Those are two good things to believe. Those are two helpful things in our faith. So we see belief, I'm going to put this in theological order, belief and obedience are both components of the fear of God. And so you should be asking yourselves, do I have that kind of belief? Do I see Yahweh as the most powerful God? Do I believe that he's a covenant-keeping God, even when sometimes it seems like my life isn't going so well, and maybe he doesn't keep in his promise? Maybe, Maybe I believe that he should make my life as easy as it can possibly be, and therefore God isn't worthy of my belief in him because my life isn't easy. It's filled with tribulation. And we say, well, something's wrong because we know that God is a God who keeps all of his promises, so our perception of what we think God should be our error in making God out to be in our image must be off. Who is this God? He's the God that we are made out of the image of, rather than trying to turn the tables on him. So as we start in this, uh, this particular chapter, we need to realize that what we see is Moses and the people of God on the seashore. They are on the Red Sea seashore. Probably all around them is the debris of the uh, Egyptian uh, chariots, maybe some dead horses, and certainly a lot of dead Egyptians on the seashore. As God has made their enemy, he has destroyed their enemy. And what do we see them do there? It says... Then, in verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1, then Moses and the, the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, all right, I need to slow down here. Because what takes place is actually something that you would, would be normal in the ancient Near East. When soldiers came back from battle, and obviously they came back, so they were victorious, then women would break out in song to exalt, to praise the work, the successful work, I might add, of these soldiers. In fact, we can see an example of this in our own Bibles. We don't need to go to extra biblical to see this in, in what the, some of the other cultures did. We can see that it happened in the Hebrew ancient Near East as well. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7 says this. This is 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7 says, And they were coming home, and that's speaking of the army of the Israelites, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing, and we're going to see singing and dancing in in today's uh, passage, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another, As they celebrated, and this didn't go over so well with Saul, but this is what they sang. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And we see that Saul's jealousy starts to burn against David and we see this conflict between the men. But the point I want to take out is even in the Israelite community, their ancient Near Eastern lives, this is a part of their lives as well. But something completely happens differently today. We just read the story. I just told you the facts about the ancient Near East, that it's the women that sing when the men come back from victory. We don't have women singing here. What do we have? It says this. Then, and by the way, the word then there, the way it's paired, uh, way it's paired with other words and its sentence structure, it means spontaneous. They get on the other shore. The waves cover the the Egyptians. The body and debris is, is washing up, and we have men breaking out in song. It says, Moses, and I read to you what your ESV said, and your ESV says, the people of Israel. In the Hebrew, the saying is, the sons of Israel. Now, every translator has to make a determination when they read that. Is it saying the people, generally speaking, or is it specifically speaking of the sons? It can be either one, and they're right, depending on the context. Well, I can tell you that I read it when I was studying it as the sons thinking general, excuse me, as the, uh, excuse me, as the people of God thinking everybody broke out in song. But it's in all the way in verse 21 when you realize what happens in verse 21. It says that Miriam sung to them. When it says Miriam sings to them in the refrain, the them is a male or masculine plural which means that the them has to be masculine. This is the men being led by Moses that begin this song that is so countercultural. And the reason that they do this is because the men are singing the victory song unto Yahweh. It is not women singing the victory song unto their male soldiers coming home. And so you have men, the men of Israel being led by Moses leading this. We will see the women of Israel chime in, and it's that that back and forth of men and women singing. The women are singing the refrain. The men are singing the main portion of this, this. And you get the the beauty. Think about this. There has to be close to 2 million, if not more, Israelites singing this. The reverberation in that community of that many voices singing together. (laughs) You would know the might of God. Just by the voices of the people that are exalting him. And you go, this is a God that is powerful. So now we see, in, in, in point number one, we're dealing with knowing Yahweh as Savior compels worship. It compelled them when they realized he saved them. And they broke out in it. And it does the same for us if we understand the fear of God. If we possess it. If it is influencing us. Sometimes we don't have it influence us because we allow the world to hinder it. But we need to recognize that worship should, should naturally come out of our, our knowing God is our Savior. Now, let me read this. And the only reason I'm going to read this, I've had people ask me before, why do you read the same passage if you just had somebody sing it? Excuse me, just had somebody read it. Well, I do that to bring color. Our English words don't always cut carry the fullness of what's going on so I hope this draws us as a people into this to go wow now I know what the Hebrews were thinking when they were using these words that were translated into English so let me read this to you for, for us now I will sing to Yahweh for he has and your wording is triumphed gloriously the word the words are two, two uh, uh, verbs in Hebrew it is ga'ah ga'ah The first one acts as an adverb or or, uh, gives more description to the the second word. So it would be as if, and if you have the NASB, it says this in, in the NASB, for he is highly, or I like the one, surely exalted. That's what they're singing. Yes, he triumphed gloriously, but he is surely. There is no one who could convince us otherwise that he is not the highest. He has done the exalting of himself. We, show, we bear witness to that exalting. He continues on. For the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea, Yahweh is my strength and my song. What an unusual thing to say. Yahweh is my song. I wonder if any of us have ever uttered that word or that statement and he has become my salvation. They have watched him. He, they ha- he has saved them. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. That idea of praise is magnify his greatness. I'm not afraid to tell people how great my God is. My father's God, and I will exalt him. In other words, I will make sure he is above all others. And in their minds, all other of the, the other nations' gods, we would consider those false gods because they are merely angelic beings, fallen angelic beings that want to be worshiped by the fallen nations. But they are no gods. They are created beings. That's who they worship. And then verse 3, Yahweh is a man of war. And who is he a man of war against? Evil. As a police officer, I used to fight evil and take great satisfaction in knowing I can't be the one in court to determine, but I could catch him and I can put them before the courts, and I can take them out of society so that evil doesn't reign anymore. There's some satisfaction in knowing evil is dealt with. Well, I can tell you the ultimate satisfaction is knowing that God perfectly deals with evil. It doesn't get a a wink or a pass. Now, some of it may not be dealt with in this lifetime, but they will stand before God, and they will receive the punishment deserving to them. Our God is a man of war against evil. Yahweh is his name. Don't be confused is what they're saying. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea. And his chosen officers, those 600 that rode in those, those particular chariots, those, those, those that were his, his royal guard, if you will, the best of the best, they were nothing to Yahweh. And his chosen officers were sunk or drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. You put a stone in water, every time you put it in water, it goes down. Every time he deals with the, his enemies, they go down. There is no question. He continues on, your right hand. In, it's interesting, Pharaoh used to be the God, this is what they would call him. When we have found through archaeology some of the, their praise songs of Pharaoh. He was the God of the strong right hand. The God of the strong right arm. Think about this. This is inspired word of God. And he's having them mouth, them sing forth who has the true strong right hand. Your right hand, O oh Yahweh, was glorious in power. The idea is it inspires awe due to your strength and your ability. Your right hand, oh Yahweh, shattered the enemy to worship Yahweh as it relates to music. I've been a part of churches where I misunderstood. I thought, you know, when someone would say, oh, it's time to worship, I thought, oh, that just meant we're just going to do music. We're going to sing, meaning worship is, by singing, is the only form of worshiping. What we're doing right now is worshiping. So I want to qualify. As it relates to worship and related to music, this is something that should come natural to those of us who fear God. And if it doesn't, ask God to give you a heart that it does. If you're afraid that you are going to sound poorly, stand close to me. I'll drown you out. I tell it sound terrible. But I'm, I am singing to my God. My wife might have to take a step away so she doesn't hear that cat screaming. But by goodness, by golly, I want my God to know. It can't help but, but be expressed through me that I Exalt my God because of who we am. And that's not because of anything good I am. It's because of what he's doing in my heart. What he's showing me. I used to be, uh, be fearful of how others would, would view me. Particularly how they'd hear my voice. I wish I had the voice of, like Pastor Pete. You ever heard him sing? He can sing. You ever heard me sing? I can't sing. But I sing. So we see here that it should come out. We, should, we can't help but worship by singing. Have you ever personally identified how Yahweh is your strength? They sang, Yahweh is, your, is my strength. What is your Exodus victory song? How is God, based on the experiences in your life, your song, your salvation? Those are, those are things to ask yourself in the, the still Moments before you get out of bed in the morning or before you go to sleep at night, those times where you have the darkness to help you just focus on God and ask those questions. How are you, my victory song? And I I don't question that you are, but have I ever thought about what it is that, that I would sing to you that I know personally you've done in my life in redeeming and saving me? Those are key to us to understand and to demonstrate our fear of God. Well, in point number two, in dealing with verses 7 through 11, we, we know that Yahweh's, and it focuses on Yahweh's otherness. That is his holiness, and that it inspires awe. Let me read to you verses uh, 7 through 11. In the greatness of your majesty, when he speaks of majesty, he's speaking of imminence. What is eminence? Your distinct superiority. In the greatness of your distinct uh, 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 superiority over all, everything you created, you are over because you are the creator of it, and particularly those that would dare, think they could compete or compare against you. You, O God, are superior. You overthrew your adversaries, those that would rise up. You sent out your fury, that's his burning anger in the form of intense wrath. I might even add and make sure we understand that all of God's wrath is just anger meted out or or borne out on those that deserve the wrath. We know we deserve the wrath. That's one of the reasons why we are Christians. We finally come to the place where we say we are deserving of your wrath because we are sinners, but we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. But God, but for God, we are saved. By God, we are saved through his son, Jesus Christ Christ he continued, you sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble, like it's nothing. They are nothing more than the, the worthless leftover stock that, that people tread on the ground. That's the, the picture of his enemy. In verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. That's the, those are the walls that were created. The flood stood up in a heap, again describing them. The deeps congealed. The idea is the, that the deep, that the, the walls solidified that they became rigid. We don't know water as a, as a form of rigidity. We call that ice. But yet he takes water and he makes it rigid. That's not ice. And he turns it into these walls that are protection walls for them. Oh, but for their enemies, they are going to crush them. He continues, the enemy said, and look at the wording now that you have it in a, in, a, in a song-like fashion. It emphasizes it so much more. I will pursue, the, pursue speaking of they, the enemies talking about pursuing the Israelites, the people of God. I will overtake. I will divide the, sto- the spoil. My desire shall have the fill of them, them being the spoils. My hand shall destroy them. Oh really? Let's get to the next verse. That's what you think? You blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead. Another picture of them going just as sure as lead is going to the go, go to the bottom when you release it on top of the water. That is the fate of these people. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh? Among the gods, you see the little G. It's the idea again of the, the, those angelic beings that are fallen that want to rise up and say, we want to be worshipped. You should bow yourselves to us. Those that work the puppets that are the tyrants in yesterday's society and today's societies. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? The idea is being set apart when you think holiness in this context. It's set apart in an utterly different. It is magnifying, it's bringing attention to God's otherness. We tend to, as human beings, compare God to his created world because we lack any other means to compare. But we have to keep in mind, he is completely other. It continues on, awesome, or another way of saying that is awe-inspiring, and glorious deeds. Those are the deeds that are praiseworthy that God does, that are miraculous in nature. And in in fact, he even goes on to say doing wonders, which is another way of saying doing miracles. Miracles that cause us to marvel and go, who could do this? No one other than God can do this. So my question to you and to me is who or what is like Yahweh in your life? You realize that if you have anything in your life that is like Yahweh, I can help you out. You found your idol, or plural, idols. We all, unfortunately, are tempted and fall and don't even sometimes realize it, that we are allowing things, statuses, people, to become idols in our hearts because we put them above God in importance. We don't want that. We need to ask ourselves as as we examine our lives, who is like Yahweh or what is like Yahweh? What have I failed and now raised up and made it like Yahweh in my life? We do not want to be enslaved. That is what idols do. That is what the false gods of the Egyptians were having the Egyptians do to the Israelites. And ultimately, they were enslaved by their own mad desire for oppression to the point of their own deaths because they would do anything to get back their slave labor that could do all they wanted to be mighty in their own minds. So we see here that To believe is is one criteria of fearing God. To obey is another criteria. To worship is another criteria. But let's look at point number three, knowing Yahweh's presence, oh, it does the opposite effect. For us, it causes us and draws us into worship. To them, it terrifies the pagan nations. And I don't know about you, maybe it's because I have fought evil before, and lost as a police officer, and know the sting of defeat, whether it's in court and they beat you in court, or it's on the streets and they beat you in the fight and you cannot take them into custody, and they escape your, your attempt to bring them to justice. To know this is actually going on in their hearts brings comfort to know, I may fail in this world system, may fail you to bring justice, but there is a state of the heart of the wicked that you must know is occurring. They look like they're all filled with confidence in what they do, and they are certainly evil in their attempts. And I'm talking about the enemies of God that we can sense that, that level of evil. They have no desire for God whatsoever. So we look here, he says, number tw- verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, again a reference to his strength, the earth swallowed them that's the picture of the, the waves coming back over them as they, they try and flee the walls that now are their assigned death, the one who would bring them death. You have led in your steadfast love. This is a cool word. This word pronounced in the Hebrew is chased. This means covenant, loyal love. God can be no other to the people he has covenanted to, to know that. This is a word that also means loving kindness, think of a relationship you're in, any relationship. If the person that you're dealing with would deal with you, no matter the situation, in loving kindness, would that not be a welcoming relationship? And yet we fall. We show them anger. We show them disgust. We show them criticalness, judgmentalism. You name it, we show them. But our God deals with us, his covenanted people, with loving kindness, because Christ has paid already for all of our failures against, all of our sin against the Father. It's amazing how God deals with us. What a beautiful picture of who God is. He continues on. Again, let me start from the beginning of verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, in other words, purchased out of death and punishment. We do not receive the punishment we deserve because of the work of Christ Jesus. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It talks about here. What? God's abode is in heaven, right? They're standing on the seashore and they're referencing his holy abode. God is preparing to take them to Mount Sinai, the mountain where he will dwell with them and he will give them the law. One day he will take them to Mount Zion and he will dwell with them and be in their presence. And because of the work, the saving work of Jesus Christ, God now dwells in not temples made of stone or of hands, but in us, the temples he made by the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. He is present with us. It's a beautiful picture. We continue on your holy abode the peoples have heard they tremble who is he talking about the enemies of god they tremble the word tremble has the idea of a constant restlessness or quaking motion for those of you who have a difficulty falling asleep at night think of that restlessness and exponentially put in physical motionless it's not just i can't get to sleep there is a physicalness that is, uh, that is involved in this recklessness. And he's going to continue. He's going to use other words that is going to describe this physical uh, uh, distress. He uses the words pangs. We understand in the Hebrew and the ancient Near East, they were the pangs of childbirth. Oh, ask a woman who knows that child is coming about those pangs where their body rides out of control in the pain of bringing that child into this world. These are the pains or the pangs, that the enemy knows that they will not let you see. In the darkness of the night, they might want you to believe that they are as confident in their evil as they are, but they writhe. It may not be physical pain, but certainly there is a emotional pain. There is a spiritual pain. And it says, it continues on, and they have, that have, these pangs have seized them. The idea is to grasp forcibly, not allowing the other to release the hold. The inhabitants, and then he's going to talk about these inhabitants. Who are they? Let's take a look at this. The inhabitants of Philistia. These are the ones that are going to border or be on their southwest border of the promised land. These are the, these are their enemies that don't want them in the in the promised land. It's a, it's a list of them, and he's going to continue on. Now are the chiefs of Edom? Ah, these are their south their southern border. So we had the southwestern border in Philistia. Now we have the southern border along the southern border in Edom. Dismayed. The idea of dismayed. If you're a, a trekkie, I like sometimes like the scientific. Or excuse me, the science fiction stuff. You know, hey, I'm get, I can My sensory array is not working anymore. And, you, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. I can't see out there. I need to figure out what's going out there in the unknown. Well, that's what happens to those who are, are brought to this place where they, are, they have this place of being dismayed. They can't interpret reality correctly. That's what happened to the Egyptians when they pursued into this, the, the danger that God was drawing them into to use as a form of judgment against them. All of their senses and their sensors should have been saying, don't go in there. That wall is held up by somebody other than you and your gods. It's going to come crashing down. It made a pathway for them. And it's going to be a death way for you, but they don't see it that way. They are in total dismay. They are reading reality wrong. It looks like they're reading it right. Hey, I can impress you. I can oppress anybody I want. And there's nothing anyone or any God can do. Oh, they are very wrong. They are under the dismay of God. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. Those are their enemies on the southeast border. And then finally he just deals with them all. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. They have, their hearts are so disheartened, you have nothing but despair in front of them. They continue, it continues on. Terror. The interesting thing about terror is when I think of terror, I think of getting scared. Uh, sometimes the little boy and me will like to hide behind a corner. My wife doesn't know I'm hiding behind. And I'll pop out and she'll be, oh, Nicholas, don't do that. And then we laugh about it and whatnot. That's not terror. That's scary. And, and she's going to one day get me back. But it's, it's fun in, the, in the, the marriage relationship. That is not terror. The terror spoken about here is overwhelming, and I have felt this from time to time, not to this degree, but close, paralyzing anxiety. The fear of the unknown, the fear of what somebody can do, whatever it is, and it overwhelms you, and you just get in this, this track that just circles, and it's what, what is referred to by, by psychologists, by biblical counselors as the death spiral. You just can't get out of it and reason this. You're stuck on this track. This is what they actually deal with in the, in the darkness where no one can see them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror, excuse me, terror and dread. Dread is the intense, fearful expectation that people who don't know God, those oppressors that think they can oppress at will, actually face. They fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. And here we go again. They are as still as a stone, Motionless. One one commentator helped me with this understanding. He called this they're in a state of petrified fear. Just as fear paralyzes us, the enemy has this petrified fear. He goes down to the bottom like a stone which is motionless and can do nothing to help himself. That's the picture of the sovereign that means all controlling power. Of our God. He ends it this way in this particular stanza, stanza number three. There are still as a stone till your people, O Yahweh, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God's presence terrifies the enemy. Know that. If you didn't know that, I can tell you from being on the streets that those oppressors that are big and strong and mighty when they're faced with the reality of incarceration, when they're faced with the reality they have to face the punishment that they deserve, you'd be surprised how many of them are nothing more than whimpering children. They, they, they had an exuberance in oppression and power, and now when it's stripped away, they are weak, they are fearful. This is what, whatever oppressor you face, if it's sin as a category, Know that Christ Jesus defeated sin, if that is your main oppressor as I approach this topic with you, and know that sin, when upon his return, it will be forever separated from God's people. It can never have power. It will show it's powerless by being able to be removed from the presence of God and his people. This is what we need to know. This is what we need to be reminded of. These truths draw us in to worship God, and particularly as we sing these truths together. Well, let's end with this, and we'll, we'll speed it up a little bit. Point number four, knowing Yahweh's future encourages the heart. Here's the epilogue, the short conclusion dealing with the future of the characters. We read this in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them. The idea of garden language. He planted Adam and Eve, or Adam, Adam well, Adam and Eve, in the garden after creating them. He will plant them one day in the land of Canaan. We hear that it constantly prophesied. Here, this is that garden language of being cared for perfectly in a garden-like setting because of the relationship you have with God. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain. Again, we, we talked about that being Sinai or Zion later on of your inheritance. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, your dwelling place. The sanctuary. A sanctuary is a consecrated, set-apart place where deity lives. The sanctuary, O Lord. And you notice I'm I'm saying O Lord and I didn't say Yahweh because that's what it says there. It says Adonai. It's referring to his, his sovereignty, that he is master over all, is what it's referencing here. O Lord, which your hands have established. And then he does something in the Hebrew. This is, again, Moses, by way of God's leading on him, he foregrounds God, and he backgrounds all the false gods. And he says this, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. In other words, Yahweh's reign of dominion is eternal. There'll be no one who strips him of his reign of dominion. And then we have the, the narrator's comments For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on, and in the ESV it says dry ground. We studied last week the word would be more theologically correct to be interpreted into the English as dry land because it says in there, it uses the word yabashah, which means we know based on how it's been used in the past, it's the picture of a new creation. It's not the, the word that he uses in the account of the, uh, the floods coming uh, over the people in the great flood in the in Genesis. That is Haraba. It's not that word. We know that they pass on on dry land, that which is good, a new work is, is, is there. So he continues on, in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess. Again, we reference that. The reason that's in there is because she under the inspiration of God, authors the refrain. Moses authors, under the inspiration of God, the body of this song of victory, and she authors the refrain. The sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand. And a tambourine was almost always used in the genre of victory. And all the women went out and after her with, with tam, after, excuse me, went out after her with tambourines and dancing. It's interesting. It was seen. Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding and the, uh, an Orthodox Jewish wedding? They dance in circles. Do you know why they dance in circles? Because they've always danced in circles. It's part of their ancient Near East culture. Other cultures have died out. They have kept it. When they dance with the the tambourines, the women, they are playing the instruments and dancing, and you'll see the other men dance around them. Can you imagine that picture in your mind as they're singing this song? This is what we, we see here. It's a beautiful picture of exuberance in their worship. They worship with passion. They sing forth with such joy. They know what they've been saved from. Oh, if we could know that. And it says, And Miriam sang to them, Actually, it doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It says, Miriam answered them. Anytime answered is used in the, in the context of a song in the Old Testament. It's the refrain portion of the song. We know that this is a refrain by the Hebrew words God gave Moses to speak and identify what Marian does. She creates the refrain by way of, of divine inspiration. What a beautiful picture. And she sings this. Sing to Yahweh. This would be the women singing. Every time the men finish the stanza, the women's beautiful feminine voices come in after the, the thunderous deep voices of the men stop and in come the beautiful angelic voices of the women. And they sing this. Sing to Yahweh for he has triumphed glor- gloriously or for he is surely exalted. The horse and the rider he has, sh- he has thrown into the sea. Oh, church. We will sing this song, this very song we will sing for eternity. And you say, come on, how can you say that? That's speculation. Let me read to you, and I thought about you, PJ, this week, because you were in Daniel, and so much of Daniel leads to our understanding of Revelation. This song is in Revelation, and we'll see the saints singing this song. Listen to this, Revelation 15, 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing! seven angels with seven plagues ah we 're dealing with plagues in Exodus. We see a connection right here very quickly again i 'm in revelations fifteen one through four, which are the last for they are for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. See our connection here with the red sea that they 're standing next to, mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps. They're not holding tambourines or holding harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And listen what he says here, the song of the Lamb. This song of victory, if you have questioned in your mind who is the, the person of God that is bringing about this physical deliverance, over and over and over again. We see it's the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus. Here he is referred to as the Lamb. The Lamb was used in the atonement, the picture of God of this, this Lamb dying and giving his blood and his blood being put over the door stoop so that anybody inside that house was spared the judgment they deserved. We know this as the Lamb of God. This person that is bringing them through this time of deliverance, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus Christ. Even in the Isaac, where he was coming down, when Abraham's coming down with the knife, he refer, it, Moses refers to him as the angel of God. And he says, now I know because you have obeyed me. No angel's going to say that. We have to see this. There's a connection. Our God, Jesus Christ, is real. He abides with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He has done the work that has made it possible that we can be delivered from this enslaving power of sin. And this is the song itself. Great and amazing are the deeds. In other words, Christ's deeds is what he has done in the deliverance, ultimately, of believers from the defeat of death. When Christ comes again, we will know our resurrected bodies that he will give us and we will never experience that physical death that we had to experience once we entered into heaven. Oh, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. Oh, King of the nations, who will not fear? Oh, Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. They are praying The you is certainly, in one sense, the, the Godhead, the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but more specifically, this is Christ Jesus. He's going to refer to him as the, the he's known as the king. We just read, excuse me, O king of the nations. That is Jesus' role that his father has given him. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right, I'm going to leave you with this. I've gone long. You've been patient. Nobody fell, fell asleep. I appreciate that. This is all about... God's work in you to produce the fear of God. Believe, obey, and worship from a heart that can do no other thing than worship. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is not a sermon that says you need to do this because we can do none of this apart from the enabling grace that you have given us. You have given us faith, the ability to believe itself as a gift a gift that you have given, that you have, your Son has secured, that your Spirit brings upon us. You have given us the belief. You give us the ability to do what you call us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, who convicts us when we do wrong, convicts us of our sins and causes our hearts to want to cry out to you and ask for forgiveness, knowing that you are a just and faithful God that forgives us and cleanses us of all, all of our sins. And we thank you that we can stand before you knowing that ultimately it is your Holy Spirit working in and through us that makes it possible, this is the gospel lived out in our lives, makes it possible for us to be image bearers that truly image the greatness of God. Father, help us to worship with hearts of integrity. If we come in on any given Sunday and we are just worn down by the Spirit, excuse me, by the world, not the spirit, but by the world, I pray that those that come into that will allow the rest of the saints and hear their voices cry out and that you will use that cry of, of worship as we sing out to our God, that you will use that to strengthen and, and, and revive the hearts and there will be a, a worship that would flow quickly out of the, those saints that have just been beat up by the world in the, in the previous week. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness, your graciousness, your faithfulness, your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.